Welcome to this episode of Profess Hers, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature, all discussed through the perspective of women's issues and feminism. I'm Allegra, and if I had to pick a book for which the movie was better, mm-hmm. it would be Fight Club. I didn't know that was a book. Yes, it's a book. How do you not know that it's a book? I just know that you don't talk about Fight Club. That's all I know about Fight Club. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, it's a book by Chuck Palahniuk. He wrote many other books. You, hmm. don't, you don't know about books, okay. But I don't know if we should talk about Fight Club on a feminist podcast because the whole premise of the book is that they're, I guess, fighting back against the feminization of men or something. Yeah, that doesn't sound like it's, it's very like it's, on brand for us. It's very masculine. So, but the, but the movie's better than the book. So I'm Misty. And uh, a movie that was better than the book. Yeah. I don't have one. Or TV show. I guess you can like the second and third seasons of A Handmaid's Tale. They're really good. It's doing really well. They're not better than a book, but you like that they go beyond the book. Oh, I have one. I have one. I have one. Look at you. All right. The Walking Dead. I like it better on the TV show than I like the comic book. You're the first person I've heard say that. It's probably because I've only read one edition of the comic book. Yeah. And it's not in color, right? The yeah, comic it's is black, black and, white. and white. So that might be... I think I've just become like emotionally attached to the characters I see. And when they're on the comic book, yeah. it's different characters. And I'm yeah. just not as emotionally attached to them. Yeah, and they die at different times. Yeah, and it's the very, stories are very different. It's very different. So today we are talking about books that were made into movies. And of course, our focus is going to be, a, it's going to be on books that are by and about women and female characters. Because we're a feminist podcast. We are. Absolutely. First, let's talk about adapting movies from books. Let's talk about history. You really had to reach far <laughs> to get history into this podcast, but you did it. But I succeeded. So the first movie ever adapted from a book. Do you want to guess the year? The 50s. 1900. I did not know they had movies in 1900. Well, they were silent, but they had them. Okay. Sherlock Holmes Baffled. I'm going to be really honest. I've never seen this. I don't think anybody has. But it's an academic fact, and I found it. I guess give us a shout out on Twitter if you've seen this movie, (laughs) but we are not going to hold our breath. So Um, we've been doing this for over 100 years. Yeah. That's really the point I wanted to make there. Adapting books into movies. Okay. And I would say that we've gotten better at it as we've gone along so 538 which is one of my favorite websites of all time compiled a bunch of information and so they have created these two lists Mm -hmm. one is the best movies from books meaning that the reviews of movies were much much higher than the reviews of the books so the numbers would indicate that the movies were better or better received than the books. There was the more a positive feeling towards the movies. Than the books. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and these are movies like Up in the Air, Apocalypse Now, Metropolis, Scent of a Woman. That's a feminist movie. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> so the there are a lot of very, very dude movies on here. Um, the, the Graduate, Dr. Strangelove, There Will Be Blood. But the worst... I like this one better. I do too. The worst movies from books. So the the films received very low scores and the books received very high scores. So that tells us either that the story was 
changed in some way. And the fans were very b- mad about it. Or that it was just a train wreck of a film. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, addicted. I don't even know what that is. Do you? No, it's from 2014. Vampire Academy. But if we go down the list, we see a lot of young adult adaptations. So The Mortal Instruments, Percy Jackson, uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. A Walk to Remember is on this list. Yeah, The Book Thief. So a lot of these are... Oh, Divergent's on here too. That's a young adult. Divergent. God, that that movie was really bad. (laughs) Um, Ender's Game. And so there are a lot of young adult books on there, which I think really speaks to what you were saying, which is the book had such a very strong emotional connection. Yeah, so that when the, you see the movie, you really get mad at it. And I don't think that Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1 was a bad movie. Its average score, it looks like it's 65 out of 100. Um, the reason this one ended up on the list is because the difference between yeah, the, looking the, at the book, the book reviews so and well the movie loved. reviews. Yes. yes, thank you. The book was that well-loved. And also, they they turned one book into two movies for that. So Harry oh, Potter and okay. the Deathly Hallows is one is one book. Okay, I don't think I knew in, that. They turn it into two movies. So a lot of people were obviously dissatisfied with the first movie because it didn't do what they wanted it to do. I guess we have to ask if it's fair to compare books to movies. I think it depends on which book or movie we're talking about. Because I do think sometimes when we're comparing books and movies, especially if it's a much older book Mm -hmm. and we're adapting it to a modern day audience, Mm -hmm. of course there are things we are going to change. So I don't know if it's fair to compare those kind of things. If we're comparing something that's on this worst list, like The Help, yeah, I feel like that's a much more fair comparison. Yeah. Because they're both in the modern era. They have the ability to tell the same story if they want to. Okay. And if they don't do that, there's... But they don't. But right. They, but they don't have the ability to tell the same story. Because a book can be literally any length it wants to be. And be publishable and be readable. I mean, people will read eight, nine hundred page novels. People will not go to movies that are longer than two and a half hours. I guess that's true. You have more of an investment if you're reading a book. Yeah. And so you can't control the narrative as much. You have to find a way to package it into a movie. And that's why when they translate books to movies and they make one book into multiple movies... They do it to be more honest or more genuine in terms of keeping what's in the book. But what happens is you have two movies that have very uneven plot lines and and pacing. So they did that with The Hobbit. They turned The Hobbit, I think, into three movies. It's one book and it became three movies. Three movies. Wow. And (laughs) they're very boring. But what they wanted to do was everybody has a favorite scene or a favorite character so they or didn't a want favorite to part. Cut anything. So they wanted to keep it all. And mm. so in keeping it all, you made three movies with basically one kind of plot line and they were all pretty boring. The other thing I was thinking about when we were talking about doing this is audience. Yeah. They do have different audiences. Because I think with books you can target a very specific reader. Yeah. But with movies, you kind of need a broad audience if you're going to make your money back. Yeah, that's true. So you do have to make it more 
appealing. More appealing. And that's why they change. I mean, all of the Marvel movies, of course, are adaptations from books in some way. Right. And so they that's where they really have to hodgepodge stories together, I think, because you don't have 10 years of backstory to right. understand the way that you would with a comic book reader. Yeah. Because there's a different audience. I mean, and oh, for somebody I, yeah, like me yeah. who doesn't read a comic book, right? I could go into that movie and I'd be fine with it. Yeah, but somebody who is invested in those characters is going to be like, "What did you just do?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you don't read the comics, then the movie has to do a very good job of explaining to you exactly what's going on. And so, I prefer it when movies get made into TV shows or when books get made into TV shows or miniseries. Yes, I think that. That is a much better tactic. Because you spend more time with the characters. Yes. You can live in that world a little bit longer. Yes. And for whatever reason, we might not watch a movie over two and a half hours, but we will binge watch a series in a day. We sure will. Yeah. I don't get what the difference is there, but it's true. Well, I I also think movie producers and movie production companies just won't make movies that are that long because it's too risky. Yeah. So, yeah, but you're right. People don't want to go see a movie for three hours, but they do want to watch six hours of Stranger Things at once (laughs) with no bathroom breaks. Right? Yeah. I don't know. So let's talk about my picks because they're far more important than yours. I agree. <laughs> I, I, do, I do not disagree with that. So I have picked uh, several books. I picked the book Annihilation. I'm going to talk about a book called Sweet Bitter. And I'm going to talk about Big Little Lies. Of those three, I have heard of one. Which one? Big Little Lies. Because of the HBO show. Yes. Yeah. So Annihilation is a novel by Jeff Vandermeer. And it's the first in what he calls the Southern Reach trilogy of mysterious sci-fi social commentary novels. That is a mouthful. <laughs> what does that mean? So they are they are sci-fi stories. There is a mystery involved. But in the end, they are making some social commentary. So it's not just like alligators from space sci-fi. There's like a There's stronger a reason. Meaning. Okay. Yeah. So it was written by a man, which doesn't necessarily make it ineligible for us to talk about. But almost all of the characters are female and the four main characters are all female. It's a team it's about a team of female scientists. That is unusual from a male author. Yes. So I think it's worth talking about just because it's unusual. Yeah, and I mean it's a it's there's a reason that they they all have to be female because they're trying an experiment to see what happens to women basically when they send them into this place. So Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's a team of female scientists who are known in the book only by their job title. So they don't have names that we are told. They're named psychologist, biologist, anthropologist, linguist. That's interesting. When was this written? A few years ago. So it's new-ish. Okay. They're tasked with entering this abnormal area that no one can explain. So imagine like a swamp where everything in the swamp is defying the laws of nature and physics. So it's the upside down from Stranger Things. Yes. Okay. Got it. They're referring to it as Area X. Nobody can explain what it is, but it seems to be kind of a self-contained anomalous area. So just think about a swamp that isn't following by the rules. Got it. The creepiest scenes in the book take place in this underground tunnel, which the main character, the biologist, calls a tower. And so part of the mystery is why is she calling this underground thing a tower? 
right? Because right? she's not. She, she does, and she never explains why she keeps calling a tunnel a tower. So that's part of the mystery. But the walls in this tunnel breathe. Secret messages appear on the walls. Okay, that's not terrifying at all. And there is a some kind of entity crawling in the tunnel. Great. And at some point, it kills one of the scientists. It, like, snatches her, pulls her down, pulls her in, kills her. Is this supposed to be kind of, like, horror-ish? Some scary, yeah. Okay. So it's described, this tunnel is described so well that I can still picture it from the book in my mind over a year after reading it. And I don't, to, here's a confession time for an English teacher. I don't really remember what happens in books. Because you read so many they blur together? I don't, know, I don't think that's it. I just don't remember what happens in books. So um, I have to write a review. Take notes. Take notes. Um, and so only if it's a book I've read many times. But this I can picture. I could draw you a picture of it if I had any skills at drawing. <laughs> Um, so the psychologist is responsible for hypnotizing the other scientists, and there are these specific trigger words that will make them do things. Okay. Um, so it's, there's a government organization that has sent them in, and that government organization wants to control a lot of the variables. So the word annihilation will make someone commit suicide. Oh, okay. That's happy. Yeah. (laughs) So the book is more about understanding and discovery, trying to figure out what Area X is and how it works. The movie is more about a mission to save a dying husband. Where did he come from? So the biologist has a husband who's also gone into Area X on a previous excursion. And in the movie, that person is played by Natalie Portman. And she is there to save her husband. And so that is what is propelling the plot forward. It's her mission to save her Ooh, husband. Ooh, that's interesting because usually we're killing off women to propel men forward. I know. Yeah. So in the movie, they have different jobs. Uh, and there's a fifth scientist. One of them is a magnetologist. Is that a real thing? I don't know. I never want to look it up. They also now have a paramedic to go with them on their excursion. So the jobs have changed. Okay. They have names in the movie, I think, because the film director was like, yeah, I'm not making a movie. <laughs> with women without with naming five them. women and not giving them names. Like, that's not, it's not going to be me. So the deaths are different. Two of them are killed by a creepy bear. The creepy bear doesn't even exist in the book. And the tunnel isn't in the movie. And that's like a big thing in the book. Yes. There is at one point like a hole in the ground. But that's not the same thing. And they're like, and I think that's supposed to be like a nod to the tunnel. But they've taken it out completely. There's no creepy monster down there. There's no breathing walls. There's no secret messages. See, and that seems like it'd be a really cool visual in a movie. Exactly. Uh, and it feels more in the in the movie like these women are competing with each other. Like it's a game of survivor and they don't want to build the wrong alliance. Mm. In the book, it really seems like they're there together. Um, and there's no hypnotism. As far as I remember in the movie. Okay. So the one of the differences is the movie was made to stand alone. The book is part of a trilogy. The movie was made to be its own thing. Oh, okay. Um, and the other thing is the filmmaker wrote the movie from memory after reading the book one time. So he basically wrote a movie based on the things he happened to remember or the things that stood out to him most. Yeah, that's not yeah, typical. M- most of the time, 
the writers like destroy copies of the book because they're reading them so many times and referring back to right them. they're like yeah literally cutting and pasting things yeah so um and the general world building in the film is weaker probably because it's based on one reading of the book but in the movie the world building doesn't make as much sense there's no mention of what the southern reach is and that's the government organization and the ending kind of takes things in a different direction and really, you're meant to, you end up not knowing whether Natalie Portman is herself or replaced by an alien. So the movie has the same name? Annihilation? Yes. Okay. I wanted to look it up on IMDb <laughs> and see what the rating was. So both have, both the book and the movie have a full cast of women who are accomplished, smart, strong, and interesting, either scientists or, in the case of the movie, one of them is a paramedic. So they're all driven in the sense of the plot, by their careers and their interests, um, except Natalie Portman, who's driven by trying to save her dying husband. Okay. Or possibly dead husband, or possibly replaced by an alien husband. Both have a diverse, both the, the book and the movie have a diverse set of characters who show, like, different approaches to fear, different approaches to mysteries, different approaches to problem solving. The movie has a diverse cast in terms of race and ethnicity. And they don't just give us women, but they give us female scientists who are there to do work and not kiss boys. And like you said, even though Natalie Portman is motivated by trying to save a man, it's her that's doing the saving. Right, so right. that's a little bit of a turn. So both feature women in something that is clearly a work of science fiction. And that's not usually a genre that has a lot of female protagonists. Right, it's usually like the one woman. Right, so and her it, whole personality so, is girl. <laughs> so if you are a a female who likes science fiction, it might be very exciting to to find books like this where all of the main characters are are female, and that there are multiple approaches in female characters. So there's not just one token woman. And so obviously both the movie and the book would pass the Bechdel test because it's all women and they're talking about science and saving each other and running from creepy bears and stuff. Do we use the Bechdel test on books now? I was just saying it would. Oh, okay. okay. I was like, I've never heard of that. I don't want to start a thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So why, in your opinion, is the book stronger if they both have all of these same things? So I think it, it just, in general, what's happening makes more sense in the book. Because you have more of a background? There's because- more of a background. It, it's explained a little bit. I mean, it's supposed to be a mystery. That's fine. But, like, in the movie, you're like, what? Why are they? I don't understand. So, and then the ending is supposed to be mysterious, but it's just very confusing. Unsatisfying. Yeah. So, I know we're saying this kind of as a criticism, like the book was better, but... It's a movie with female leads and it's sci-fi and... Oh, yeah. I mean, do you think... And it's got Natalie Portman and uh, Tessa Thompson. So it has some strong, uh, notable female actors. It's not an indie movie. Right. It's a Hollywood-produced movie. But it did very poorly. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And that's the other thing that's disappointing is you wanted the movie to do really well because you want... Obviously, studios I studios to see this and think, oh, there's an audience for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think it was a failure on the part of the screenwriters if they had been more strictly aligned with the book? Do you think it would have done better? So, no, because the movie was pretty well critically received. I think it has like a Metacritic score of 
out of 10. Out of 10. Um, no, actually, it has a Metacritic score of 80 out of 100. So that's pretty good. It's pretty well received by critics. But I think it honestly, it was just confusing for people. And they are kind of frustrated by the way it ended. Also, I think people just didn't go see it because it was just ladies. Hmm. Yeah. Not great. It's U.S. grosses $32 million. Do you know how much it costs to make? $40 million. Oh, so it lost money. Yeah. I mean, that's its U.S. gross, so I'm sure. Yeah, overseas, that'll go up. But, yeah. And sales after it leaves theaters. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, it has potential to earn more than if that. We wanna th- if we can think of, let's say, a different kind of scary sci-fi movie, let's look at A Quiet Place. It made... Have you seen that movie? Is that the one where they can't talk? Yeah. Okay, yeah. It made... So, A Quiet Place is U.S. gross was $188 million. So, wow, a lot more. Yeah. So, it's not just, oh, it was a sci-fi movie. Oh, it was futuristic. Mm. Yeah. It was... It did very, very poorly. And I don't even remember seeing a trailer for this. And it only came out in 2018. That's not that long ago. Yeah. Very cool that it got made. Very disappointing that it wasn't made very well. I think it could have been written in a different way and it may have been more successful. And like you said, it could have been marketed a little bit better. Mm -hmm. I mean... There's a movie that just came out called Crawl about a person about some alligators. Oh, I, I've seen trailers. So you've seen multiple trailers for that. Yes, yeah. but I don't ever remember seeing one exactly. for this. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, because it's like a oh, what's the one with the Sharknado? It's like Sharknado, but it's crocodiles. Yes. Yeah. It's actually very scary, but pretty stupid. So Sweet Bitter. Have you heard of this book? I feel like I have. Is a novel by Stephanie Danler. Uh, In the book, the main character is Tess. She goes to New York to, quote, have experiences. As one does. Uh, She becomes a back waiter in an upscale restaurant, so not a person who, like, greets guests or takes orders or makes recommendations, but basically... Like a food runner? Yes. Okay. And the book does this very marvelous job of painting a very vivid and real picture of what it's like to be in the service industry in New York. Is this semi-autobiographical or she does have ex the author does have experience working in restaurants okay i don't know that the experiences of tess are hers but she does have firsthand experience of working in restaurants so she kind of wrote about what she knew yeah and so what compelled me what what i found compelling about the book was how the sheen of upscale restaurant contrasts with like the chaos and the grime behind the scenes for the people who work there Right, everything is dirty and gross in the back, and everything is pristine and perfect and well managed in the front. Does that make sense? So it's almost like an illusion. Yeah. Okay. So Dan Lard, the author, has stated that although she has a lot in common with Tess, the novel's protagonist, that Tess quote quickly became a character and is in many ways much better and much much worse at life than I was at much that age. better and much worse. Yeah. Okay. Much better and much worse at life than I was at that age. So. Tess is Did you focused- say how old she is? I'm sorry. Like early 20s? Yeah. Okay. Tess is focused in the book on training her palate and learning about wines so okay. that she can become like an actual server. Okay. Because that's like part of what you need to have. Yes. Okay. So she develops a close relationship with a woman that she admires who is a server um, she doubts herself. She has a crush on a bartender. So she goes through a lot of, like, coming-of-age experiences in the book. 
Okay. What I like best about it is how realistically the author portrays how it feels to feel like you're out of your element, like you're not one of the... The shadow water? Yeah. But, well, really that you're, like, not part of the in-group of a place and how it kind of feels to try and work your way in to an existing in-group. How it feels to be... the main servers are the in-group. And the bartender. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. The lowest socially ranked person in the group is the main character. And so I like that we get an accurate portrayal of how it feels to have the least social capital in a group. How it feels to be kind of an anxious outsider. I think that is done really, really well and very accurately. And so even though I've never been to New York and have no interest in working in a restaurant and I don't know anything about wine, I found a lot of this things that I could relate to. So I'd say a real dynamic, developed female character a good female friendship. And the book got a lot of praise ahead of being published. And in fact, before the book came out, the author got a two book deal. So this was her first, first book. Yes. Okay. Wow. Yes. It was made into a series on the channel stars. Everyone was new once. Don't get overwhelmed. I just need to pay attention. Barney's eyes. Water 24. Faster. Restock. Soup's been 27. You know nothing about service. Howard did not just give you a job. He invited you to trade. You know nothing about wine. It's not a shot. Well, what do you want to be? I don't know. Okay, so being a series, it has more chance for you to get to know Tess in yeah. her environment and yeah. the other in-group. Yeah. Okay, but... But it's, it's only six half-hour episodes, so it's about three hours total. Six half-hour episodes. Okay. So three hours. Yeah, it seems like most of these series get like 45 minutes or an hour per episode, don't they? Yeah. Stars is like HBO, right? Like you have to... Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Stephanie Daimler was involved in the adaptation of a book to TV show, and they are making more seasons of the show, so they haven't finished the narrative of the book. So I would say it's a little more clumsy in the way it portrays themes and contrasts. It's not quite as nuanced. It's a little more obvious, a little... More like, this person's good, this person's bad, this person's nice, this person's mean. Um, So there aren't as many shades of gray there. But I would say that what's true about both of them is that both the book and the show kind of give readers or viewers the impression that there's nothing wrong with not knowing what you want to do with your life. There's nothing wrong with being a server or wanting to work in the service industry and wanting that to be your whole career. Tess sees the world of the restaurant as her world. Okay. And it's small, but she likes it. And so neither of them are trying to say, like, she's a waitress now, but one day she'll grow up and move on out of here. It's right. like, that's this what she wants to do, and so that's okay. Mm-hmm. In both, the bartender dude is named Jake, and he's awful and terrible, and he treats her, it's like, I'll call you when I feel like it kind of thing. Oh, so they have, like, a relationship. Yeah, sort of. So there are some toxic relationships, and they don't do a great job of illustrating that Jake is a bad dude. And the show could do a better job of saying definitively or giving the definitive impression he's bad. The way they're a little wishy-washy on it. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So I pulled this up on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. And I have an interesting little look here because the tomato meter, which is critics... Yes. 30%. Yeah. Audience score, 85. Yeah. So there's- That makes sense to me. It does? Yeah. 
So it's not a very well-made show in terms of when you watch a show on premium cable, you expect it to be kind of like a... Game of Thrones. Yeah, an elite show. And it's just not written that well. It's not composed that well. Like, the episodes don't have necessarily a good rhythm to them. It's just not very well composed. So do you feel like if it was on network television, it would feel more at home? Yes. Okay. So I also think that because the the show emphasizes the relationships, that it's probably a lot more successful with audience members and people watching it. Because that's more compelling, right? Right. And it takes place in New York. And so they also emphasize that a lot, like finding yourself in New York, which I think is a very popular Common. idea. Yeah. yeah. So the um, little critics consensus here is it fails to live up to its well-received literary source material or stand out from the many big city coming of age television series that came before it. So kind of what you were saying right there, like, yeah, people love these stories. Yeah. I mean, the reason that we have so many coming of age in New York stories is because people will watch them and like them. Exactly. But a critic will be like, yeah, we've seen this before. And an audience member will be like, yeah, I need to kill 30 minutes. I've seen it before. I want to watch it again. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I think if we went back to being focused mostly on Tess and her learning to navigate the world, then... Oh, second season's already premiered. Oh. And so far, the tomato meter is up to 83%. Okay, so it's doing better. Which is interesting because most series dip in the second season, not get yep. better in the yeah. second season. Yeah. So maybe they were taking some of what the critics said and really examining it. Let's hope so. So do you feel like this is a case of the book and the series trying to do different things? D- absolutely, yes. Okay, why? Yeah. Because the book was trying to be a very authentic voice and what it, it really cared about getting the experience right. How does it feel to be in this situation socially and how what is it like in a restaurant and what is it like to you know try to learn different things about food and wine and what is it like to have someone who's your friend but also kind someone, of competition no like is, is your friend but also this person you look up to and admire oh okay so and who you feel like has all the power in the relationship because you look up to them so those kinds of dynamics are very well done in the book and probably why she got a two book advance because that kind of emotional authenticity is what p- people who read books look for. But the show is really like a Escapism? lot flashier and a lot more like coming of age in New York. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to talk about Big Little Lies. Of the three that I'm talking about, it's definitely the best known. I heard about it before. (laughs) So that should be your gauge. It's a novel by Leanne Moriarty. She has written a lot of uh, novels focused on women. She is, I think she's from Australia. Okay. I know that this book is originally set in Australia. Oh, that's interesting. The TV show is set in California, Southern California. Okay. So- The book and the show are both about this group of pretty affluent moms who are very, very active in their kids' school. One of the moms isn't as well off, but she has managed to, like, rent a house in this great school district. And so, and she's still befriended by this group of moms, even though by all kinds of standards, she's poor, or at least much poorer than they are. Okay, so there's, like, one who is outside of... One who is, we would probably call very 
middle middle class. Okay. And we're talking about a like Orange County, okay, Newport Beach, the nice area in Southern California. So all these women have complex backstories. And what's interesting about the book and what the show does as well is they show us that people who we would think of as having easy lives because they have money, because yeah. they live on the beach. Of course, they don't have easy lives, right? Everybody has... Rich people have problems too. Right. Everybody has relationship problems. Everybody has anxieties and fears. All, you know, everybody has issues. So I don't want it to be like I'm saying, oh, poor little rich people. But I, I do think it's important to say it's... We can't say, oh, you have an easy life just because you have money, right? Domestic violence happens in rich families too. Okay. So that's one of the issues we're dealing yes. with. Okay. The book deals with sexual assault, single parents, family violence, boredom within a marriage, okay, parenting, and obviously female friendships because it's a group of women. So it's a very successful book. The book's from 2014. The book was classified in two ways as domestic and mystery. Those are not two things I usually put together. So, the- Although when I think about a domestic book, I would probably say a cookbook, so I'm not sure. <laughs> What a domestic book is. Uh, I don't know either. I, I, it just feels like it's a, an offensive thing to call a book about women. But anyway, the HBO show is pretty loyal to the books. Characters are very well developed. We get a lot of backstory. We get some nuance. They do change some uh, plot Like the setting. Yeah, they do change the setting from Australia to California, which to make it more appealing to Americans. Mm-hmm. Although they do put um, Nicole Kidman... In the show, and she's Australian, but then she has an American accent. Is she originally Australian? Yes. How did I not know that? I don't know. Okay, I have a question. Okay. Is this set in like modern day America or are we talking like the 1980s? Or no, like right now. Okay, so it's happening now. Yes. Okay, got it. The kids have cell phones and iPods and they don't have iPods. That's old. What am I talking about? That was us in college. Yeah, they have cell phones. Okay. They do add an affair to the show that didn't exist in the book. In the book, the main character who is played by Reese Witherspoon in the TV show. Okay. That character is like experiencing boredom in her marriage. But they took it a little further in the show. They did take it a little further and I'll tell you why. Okay. In the show and in the book, this person is married. They have great kids. They have a strong family. They're obviously wealthy. She's married to Adam Scott. Okay. From Parks and Rec? Yeah. So how you cheat on him, I don't know. (laughs) But Reese Witherspoon was going to play that character. And she said, "Um, this person is too perfect. Like this person can't just like have everything together all the time and have no actual flaws. Right. So she and I'm sure that you can think of TV characters who are like that, like perfect all the time, have no flaws. And she wanted it to be a little bit more realistic. And she wanted the character to have basically something wrong with her, like to do for her to do something wrong. Well, right, because people are complex. And so she wants a, a little bit more gray. That makes sense to me. Exactly. So the TV show, the first season is the book. Okay. And it has a very dramatic ending. And that's the ending of the show. So season two is brand new material, not from the book. So much like The Handmaid's Tale. Right. So the TV, so HBO wrote season two. It's an entirely new storyline and it adds Meryl Streep as a character who didn't even exist in the book. Oh, okay. She's a person's mother. 
Okay. And I will say the book does a better job of developing one of the characters whose name is Bonnie. In the show, she's played by Zoe Kravitz. Lenny Kravitz's daughter? Yes. Hey, I knew things. I mean, you knew two people with the name Kravitz were related. Hey, so. hey, don't take this from me. <laughs> so in a, she's a relatively minor character until a major plot point. And I think the book gives us a much better understanding. She's Reese Witherspoon's ex-husband's wife. Okay, that's a little complicated, but I got it. I think the book gives us a much better understanding of Bonnie, and I think the book gives us a much better understanding of the long-term effects that family violence can have on a person, and that becomes very important later in the show. But yes, one of the characters has been um, sexually assaulted. One of the characters is living in a home with domestic violence. And so it does deal with very serious things, even though it looks like it's just about rich ladies in California. Do you feel like the show depicts those things in a responsible manner? Yes. That's good. Yes. Because a lot of times it doesn't happen. And the book does as well. Okay. Yeah. It's in all of their complexity. Okay, so Missy, I heard that you have read one book. Okay, so here's the thing. I knew you were going to pick mostly fiction. Yeah. Were all of them fiction? They all were, right? Yeah. So I picked because that's where all the good books are. A non-fiction, anyway. of course, book. You did. But you know this book, or at least you know the movie or show. Let's just say right now we have probably confused the words movie and show like <laughs> ten times. We should just say media depiction. <laughs> so anyway, I picked Orange Is the New Black. Okay, yeah, okay. So it's a memoir. It's a memoir. Would you say nonfiction? Because you're you. I always think of, like, historical textbook. This is not a textbook. I know. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Oh. When you said I picked a nonfiction book, I was like, oh, you picked, like, I don't know. Oh, I'm going to do, like, Birth of a Nation. Exactly. No. Okay. So you're okay. talking about a personal memoir. Yes. Created for nonfiction. Yes? Yes. Okay. Just yes. trust me. I teach creative okay. writing. Yes. Sure. Just creative nonfiction. Okay. Yeah. So Which it means it's a true story. Yes. Told in the style of a novel. Kind of, yeah. So they, yes. So in 2010, this is published mm-hmm. by Piper Kerman. So I want to tell you why she's in prison. Okay. Because it's a little different in the show. Yeah. Piper Kerman, the real Piper Kerman, she spends about a year in a federal correction institution for money laundering and drug trafficking. So what happened in her life? I'm sorry. She was only there for a year? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's a big, okay. big difference. Okay. So she's a graduate of Smith College, mm-hmm. which is very well respected. Yeah, she's a richie rich. She comes from a family that is college educated, that has kind of an expectation for her in her life. Yeah. And so I think maybe some of what she was doing was rebelling against that. And so she gets into a relationship with Nora, who's a little bit older than her, who has connections to a drug runner. And through this relationship, she doesn't actually smuggle drugs, but she did smuggle $10,000 as part of this drug scheme. Mm -hmm. And they break up. She moves on in her life. She gets married to this guy named Larry. They're living in New York. And then the FBI comes to her house and basically says, you've been named as part of this scheme. So like, this is something she did when she was younger. She didn't really think she was... Still involved with it at all. Yeah. And then 
she has to go to jail or prison, I guess. But she smuggled this money internationally. Yes, yes. Okay. So she did it. She absolutely says she did it. Yeah. Know, she doesn't make any statements against that. She did it. They caught her, whatever. So in 2004, a decade after she did it, she's going to go to prison. Okay. So why I like the book better than the show. I feel like there's a more realistic portrayal here of class and race within prison. In the book? In the book. Really? I do. Because I would say one of the strengths of the show is the way it portrays class and race in prison. Okay, but here's the thing. She only had to do a year. Yeah. And in the... see, What season are they on in Netflix? I don't know. Seven. Six. That's obviously much longer. So if you were comparing just the first season of the book, or the first season of the show to the book, you think the book does a better job portraying race and class in prison? Not within like showing the diversity of characters i think the the show does a better job in that yeah but showing what the outcomes are if you're from a family that has money yeah and you could hire a good lawyer yeah i think definitely the book shows how those are beneficial and it also in the book shows that she has so much of a support system Mm -hmm. like she's constantly getting care packages people are sending her books and magazines uh people have this kind of ongoing, like, free Piper campaign that's just among her friends. And yeah. it's kind of a joke. But she knows she's going to have a job when she gets out. She knows that she's going to have a partner when she gets out. That's a very realistic portrayal compared to some of the people she meets in the prison mm-hmm. who are single parents, who have had their children in foster care, or people who are saying, when I get out, I don't know what I'm going to do for money. How am I going to get hired? Mm-hmm. And I think those concerns are better played in the book because she can talk about statistics and stuff a little bit where they can't really do that in the show. So she gives a lot of factual information yes. and research information. Yes. And once she got out, did she spend time trying to help the people who were still in prison? She can't. Why? Because that's part of your con- uh, condition of parole. You can't be in communication with the people you were housed with. Oh. So once she's off of parole and once they are out of parole, yes, they can get back in touch and some of them do, but not during that time period. So I think what's frequently been said about the book versus the movie is that the book tells us Piper's story. The TV show tells us lots of people's stories. Well, yes. And so we hear, and especially as we get into the later seasons, Piper isn't even necessarily the main character in lots of the episodes. And we get obviously imagined backstories for all these characters who are of diverse backgrounds, age and sexual orientation and even gender expression. So I think that's the biggest strength of the show is that it is telling all of these women's stories in this very genuine relatable way and showing people who maybe didn't know previously that women in prison for the most part have the same wants desires and interests as you or me and that women who are in prison for a lot of them are people who made just like piper single questionable choices 
were very few questionable choices. And there are lots of people I know who could easily have been in prison if they ever got caught for things they did when they were kids. So I think one thing that the producers have said about the show is that it is something of a Trojan horse. Because they knew they weren't going to get people to tune in originally if it was advertised as all about diversity and look at all these different stories we're going to tell. Oh. So they used Piper to get into the door of prison because people are going to tune in to watch a middle class white woman go to prison. It just sucks because it's true. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, like I said. And then once you watch it, then you care about all of these other characters. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I think the show did a great job in that. I think, like I said, the more realistic outcomes are in the book. Yeah. But getting people to care and getting us through that door. Yeah. The show did a great job. Um, and I do like that the show, to some extent, begins to leave Piper behind. No, I, I will say one thing that I, I really hate that the show did. And I know why they did it. It makes sense. But um, her husband, Larry, that's a real person. Yeah. And in real life, was like a supportive partner, kept sending her stuff, like was a very active presence even when she was in jail, would like come to see her. Yeah. And uh, she would say that the other inmates basically all loved him and they liked him more than they liked her. Like, they were just like, if you ever hurt Larry, we'll hurt you. <laughs> but the show, to keep drama. Yeah. And because she's going to be there so much longer. Yeah. They kind of turn him into a really terrible person. And I think they also turn him into a terrible person because they, the show obviously needs us to keep rooting for Piper in some way. And there are a lot of things that she does that makes her hard to like at sometimes yeah she's not a perfect antagonist and protagonist protagonist uh but i think in order for us to still like her but also in order for her to have a relationship with a woman inside the prison obviously she and larry had to break up because if she was just cheating on him the whole time yeah then she's then we would really dislike her and I think the show having lots of romantic relationships makes it a little bit more interesting. Yeah. Um, I think this is a case of the book and the show just trying to do two completely different things. So maybe in this case, it's not fair really to compare them. Oh, yeah. Because when Piper first wrote the book, she didn't know it was going to become a series. Of course. And she was just literally telling her story. Yeah. And so then people are like, oh, it's just the white woman's story, but that is is, her authentic story, which is true, but she is a person and she's telling her own story. Right. And she made an effort in the book to try to get you to care about these other people. Yeah. But and then if she had tried to tell their stories, we would criticize her as she's appropriating their stories. Right. Doing what they did in the help. Yeah. 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 So I feel like she walked a fine line in that book and she did it well. I think the TV series is just doing something completely different. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially now. Yes. Because now we're much beyond where and the book would have been. The final, the final season has just been put onto Netflix in the last couple of weeks. Okay. Yeah. I stopped watching after a little while, but I still like it. I mean, I really like. And the person who made the show, Genji Kohan, yes. also made Weeds, mm-hmm. and I just like the show a lot. 
I there think are, there are definitely, I didn't like the, the riot storyline, but beyond that, I really like the show. I think if I hadn't have read the book first, I would like the show a lot more. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. And that, so that happened to me with um, Big Little Lies. There were lots of things in the relationships and in the characters that I really liked that I feel like didn't get really picked up in the show. And so that kind of made me mad. But but if you had watched it in the opposite order. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't, to be honest with you, I can't read something if I've already seen the show version of it. Oh, really? Yeah. And that's why I haven't read. Uh, that's why I haven't watched Sharp Objects, which is an HBO series. Okay. Based on a Gillian Flynn novel. Is I want to read it first. But okay. if I watch it first, I'll never read it. It just, my brain doesn't work that way. I like to imagine things, and I don't like to have the preconceived notion of what to be imagining. So anyway, you don't care about how I read. <laughs> I do want to talk for a minute about <laughs> about True Blood. That's vampires? Yes. Got it. Also an HBO series. So True Blood was based on a series of novels written by Charlene Harris, and they are the Sookie Stackhouse books, and that's the main character's name. This show is worlds years generations better than those books that's high praise the best and almost the only redeemable thing about the books is the general concept so she came so thank up, you for that she came up with the premise but then wrote very ridiculous books the de- what makes them ridiculous oh my god so they if you would imagine like the cheesiest like romance or mystery series where there's like 30 books in the series and they're cheesy and the sex scenes are overly graphic just very poorly written poorly developed easy to devour books i don't want to make fun of anyone who has read them but they're not good The development, the character choices, the dialogue, the relationships, they're done very poorly in the books. They're fun to read. I think I read three of them in one day. So, wow. Yes. Okay, this is a stupid question. I'm sorry. Are they adult books or are they young adult books? They're adult books. Okay. They're meant to be read quickly. So, they're... This is not high literature that you should be thinking about. Yeah, they're trade paperbacks. They're... They're sold lots of times in, like, packs of five. Um, The show is very developed and nuanced. It's written, of course, by HBO writers. There are more plot lines, more conflict, clear direction, better choices about who lives and who dies. I mean, some of the favorite characters in the books die, like, in the second book. Oh. But HBO keeps them alive. Because they're like, hey, this was good. This is Okay. These are great characters. And Anna Paquin does a great job leading the series. Um, as Sookie Stackhouse. And there's great, diverse, interesting female characters. She, her best friend, lots of other people in the book. And lots of the side characters eventually get better developed. And so you see, like, oh, they're not just, you know, backwoods idiots. They have, you know, rich, storied lives as well. It is a romance. It's supposed to be a romance. It's always supposed to be in a romance. And so a lot of the action of the women are driven by dudes. Like her, she's in love with a vampire, of course. Is she a vampire? No. Oh, okay. She can read minds. 
Of course. No, she can hear people's thoughts. Which is I guess that not is the same, same thing? I don't know. She can hear people's thoughts. And he's a vampire. She can't Is hear everyone magic? Would you just watch it? Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Um, but they're caring members of families. They're loyal friends. They, I mean, it, again, it just fills in a lot of rich story for a lot of characters. And the book does not do that very well. And also the way the book explains vampires is very dumb. And so the the show handles it a little bit better. Again, the books are fun to read. And I 100% understand why a person would s- take them on vacation or sit down and read them in the bathtub. But, like, they're dumb. They're dumb books. <laughs> okay. I've, I've read many of them. And the show is very well done. So... And that's over now, right? It's done? Oh, it's yeah. Ended? It's okay. been over for a long time. But, of course, if you have HBO, you can always watch HBO shows. I do want to mention that there are two show, two books that were made into movies okay. that we've already talked about. Okay. But I just want to say Gone Girl is a much better book than it is a movie. It's not a great book, though. And The House on Haunted Hill by Shirley Jackson is a much better book than it is a TV show. Although that is a great example of a TV show trying to do something completely different. Yes. Kind of starting from the same idea from the source material and then just running with it. Yes. Yeah. So having said all of that, I want to talk to you about the success of female authors. Okay. So using only the New York Times bestsellers list, there's almost always been more men than women. That makes sense to me. In the 50s and 60s, women comprised about 30% at most okay. of the authors on the New York Times bestsellers list. Not accounting for genre, just across the board? Right. Okay. And it's always gone up and down. There's not like a steep, clear trend line. It's It looks like a mountain range. Okay. But it has generally gotten better. In the 90s, things clearly changed, and women got closer and closer to the 50% mark. In 2001, for the very first time, it was even. 50% of New York Times bestsellers were women. 50% of New York Times bestsellers authors were men in 2001. Occasionally, since then, some years it's even, some it's not. We haven't ever gotten past 50%. We've never been like 60% women for once. Okay. But we are approaching close to an equilibrium in terms of gender there. So what happened in the 90s? Are you asking that for, for real? Yeah. I mean, it was a clear, we clearly went from being 30s, 40s to 50 or very close to 50 in the 90s. Well, we had third wave feminism, which we've talked about. It was Daniel Steele. Oh, that was it. I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she was writing books in the 90s and they were very popular. But one reason uh-huh. is the Cold War ended. Oh, okay. And so the male-dominated genre fiction about spies became less dominant and interesting to people. Women reached near parity in many genres, including supernatural. And, of course, now if we just look at supernatural books, women are much higher than 50% of the bestsellers. Most significantly, women started publishing more literary fiction novels, so non-genre, not mystery, not romance, not science fiction, but literary fiction novels. Why are you making a face? I honestly didn't know that was a thing. Non-genre? Yeah. That's everything that you study in, like, literature class. Yeah, I just thought. Is a literary fiction novel. Okay. Non-genre. I thought everything got pigeonholed in some way. No. But that's cool. No. I mean, 
typically if it's a genre novel, then everyone who's an academic like looks down at it and would never touch it or read it. Except you. Yeah. Except me. I'll read anything. <laughs> Literary fiction novels could be put into genres sometimes because Kurt Vonnegut novels are sometimes science fiction. Yeah. Right? That, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's why I was confused. But when we talk about literary fiction, they are not genre typed. Okay. Okay. So they're not marketed specifically as... Correct. Got it. Also, between 1988 and 2000, the number of MFA degrees in creative writing tripled. Wow. Okay. From 1988 to 2000, so that's in 12 years, the number of MFA degrees tripled. So that's a Master of Fine Arts. Yeah, that's... In creative writing. Crazy. Tripled. And those degrees were earned by more women than men. About 65% of those MFAs went to women writers. Hmm. Okay. So that's some of the reasons that female authors have become more prominent and reached Well, and some of those some that parody. don't become authors become editors, and some of those become book right. reps. Right. I mean, so just women entering that field, right. even if they're not authors, is going to change the dynamic. Yes. But. There's a but. Of course. In 2015, books by women made up less than 20% of books reviewed in the New York Review of Books. 30% of the reviews in Harper's, 29% of the books talked about in the Atlantic, and 22% of the books in the London Review of Books. That's so interesting. even though there are more women writers, and even though sometimes we have just as many female bestsellers as we have male bestsellers, they're not important enough to be reviewed. Publications about the publishing industry and about books are not reviewing women writers and female written books. A lot of the bias in reviews reflects a bias in publishing. In 2011, mm -hmm. Ruth Franklin at the New Republic did a very small-scale analysis of the upcoming catalogs of 13 publishing houses. She found that 11 of the 13 publishers, including all the ones you've heard of, Harper, Norton, Little Brown, Knopf, had heavily biased or heavily male-biased catalogs. Around 30% or less of their books were written by women. So they're just... Giving more book contracts to men, mm -hmm. selling more books by men, marketing more books by men, and more books by men getting reviewed in publications. Which is how people learn about books to go right. buy them. Exactly. So th this industry bias in publishing and in publications about publishing is very annoying because women read more than men do. Wow. So the, the target audience they should be focused on right they're not representing the other thing is women will read books i mean typically women will read books by female authors and male authors women will read books about women or about men men generally generally read books by men with male main characters yeah we've talked about that a couple times and men are market books are marketed to men that way so we don't have a lot of female protagonist novels being marketed to men, even. I guess and when you're in elementary school, all the books you read, canon, generally, yeah, you have a male lead. Yeah. And so women are conditioned early yeah. that you have to suck it up and get yeah. through these books. Well, and it's the same for race, right? So mm -hmm. people of color are made to read all of these books about white people. And made to read all of these books about white saviors, even, like in To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes. And we aren't being given stories as children necessarily 
about people of color, about women. So yeah, we get used to reading stories about white guys. And so when we grow that up, the norm. we'll read stories about pretty much anybody. But white guys are like, I'll just read stories about white guys. For the most part. Because they're obviously, obviously important. Obviously, that's, not that's hard, what my education's been. Hard and fast rule. But this is just the research studies have shown. Why women now, adult women, read more than men, I don't know. But men account for 20 to 30% of the fiction market. It could be, be also because, because of that socialization, men are reading nonfiction, like self-help or finance or those kinds of books, leadership. I can tell you how many times I've gone to a bookstore and I go to the historical section and I have somebody ask me, can I help you find something? Are you lost? Fiction's <laughs> over there. <laughs> no, I know where I'm at. Thank you. Yeah. About half of all Americans read a book in 2012. Oh, that hurts. Any book? About half of all Americans wrote a book in 2012. Oh. That's down to levels from about 2000. So we had this high period for reading in America from 2002 Ooh, to we 2008. We had a renaissance. We had a very high, we had record highs from 2002 to 2008. And then we've since gone back down to pre-2002 levels. Is that because of Harry Potter? I think it's because of Harry oh, Potter. Oh, no. Um, so, like, the researchers are like, don't make too much of the numbers. There's lots of factors, lots of, I mean, because it's when millennials were graduating from high school or were seniors in high school or were entering the job market, depending on the age of the... So people are like, there's a lot of reasons for that. But also, it is when the Harry Potter books were coming out. So you can't ignore that right. they came. They I think they came out from the late 90s to 2008. So yeah, I think... Fantastic. So uh, the, uh, the last thing I want to tell you about is Reese Witherspoon. I know I talked about her earlier in Big Little Lies. She has a production company called Hello Sunshine. And they make films and TV shows based on books by women starring women. So, so it's part of their mission. It is their mission. That's awesome. So they made Gone Girl. Mm. They made Big Little Lies. Okay. They made a movie called Wild. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is that the one with the boot on the front? Yes. Got it. Whatever gets your memory going. Uh, they're making right now a series called Little Fires Everywhere, which was a very popular book, I think, last year by Celeste Ng. And they're making a show or a movie for Where the Crawdads Sing, which is a book that came out this year, also by a female author. It's on my book club's list to read. So Reese Witherspoon is in all of these movies, TV shows? Well, I mean. <laughs> but she is... She is she has a book club. There's a Reese Witherspoon book club. Oh, if you, she's like the new Oprah. If you want to read that. So I just want to say that if we're talking about adaptations of books written by women, Reese Witherspoon is killing it. Even if you didn't like Gone Girl. Sorry. I hate it. I hate it so much. <laughs> we could do a whole episode on why Misty hates Gone Girl, but we don't need to do that. Allegra. Yeah. What are you currently reading? I just finished The Goldfinch for the second time. The book by Donna Tart. It's got a fish on the front. No? Yes. Goldfinch. Okay. It has a bird on the front. Oh, okay. Sorry. I'm thinking about a different book. Go ahead. The Goldfinch by Donna Tart. Uh, and I'm going to start reading The Whisper Network next, which is that book on Reese Witherspoon's book club list. I don't read all of hers, but that one looked interesting. All right. What about you? I am in the middle of The Killers of the Flower Moon. This is uh, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. Nobody asked. It's really good. It's really, really, I highly recommend. 
1000% recommend. So good. Oh, you know what I forgot to mention about the Goldfinch? What? They're making it into a movie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Profess Hers, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady guys. I'm Misty, and I'm going to give you a book recommendation of a history of the end of the world. Is it by a woman? It's not, but it's all about how religions view the end of the world and what's going to happen. It's really good. I see how that appeals to your interests. I'm Allegra, and I'm going to recommend one of my favorite books, The Burning Girl. Never heard of it. By Claire Massoud. We're very different people. It's fine. That's why we have a podcast together. We'd love to hear from you what you thought about today's episode, what you'd like to discuss in future episodes, or how great you think we are. Which is extremely great. At least one of us is. To connect with us, you Thank can you. follow us on Twitter at ProfessHers, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, or by email, same address, ProfessHers at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you to everyone who's been listening, commenting, liking, and reviewing our podcast. Please keep doing all those things, and we hope you recommend our podcast and a book to a friend. And remember... Read a book.